to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. We trust that you will enjoy today's message and that it will encourage you to grow deeper in your relationship with Christ our Savior. I just want to start by um, reading you a, a passage of scripture, one that we've looked at before, um, or parts of which we've looked at before. It's uh, from 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read from, from verse 9. <clears throat> it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And then verse 21 says, For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. As Father God, we just want to thank you, Lord, for your word And we thank you, Lord, that your word is living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you as the one that inspired the word also come and minister the word to our hearts. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are here, that you are with us, that you are in us. Thank you that we can right now experience your presence. Thank you that we can know that you are here to lead us into all truth, to comfort us. Thank you, Lord, that as we come to your word, to receive your word, that we have your supernatural grace illuminating our hearts and our eyes to see what you want us to see. Lord, it's so precious to be with your people and experience you in our midst. Thank you, Lord. Amen. I want you, um, when, I, when I read that text, one of the first things I noticed was a, a tension in, in the text. And I wonder if you noticed it as well. And I think it's a tension that all, of our, all Christians experience all the time. Um, and the tension is this, how do we live in a hostile world when we belong to a holy God? How do we live fruitfully in a hostile world when we are trying to live faithfully to a holy God? Because the it seems like the holy God and the hostile world are sort of against each other. And the problem is we know we belong to this holy God, but sometimes it's, 
it's difficult in a hostile world, in a world that is hostile towards God and God's values, to live out that holiness of God, to reflect that holiness of God that is inside of us. Have any of you ever experienced that? You experience it every day, don't you? It's, it's, it's as though the, the world, like, um, you know, the world system is against um, just God and his values and stuff. I, was, I, went, I love second-hand bookstores, one of my weaknesses, because I love books, you know. So I love browsing around these second-hand bookstores and finding, finding cool books, you know, these little gems that other people um, miss. And uh, <clears throat> I, was, I was just browsing through the second-hand bookstore, and there was a book of, of humorous quotes, like a dictionary of humorous quotes. And I thought, let me just take it up and read through it. And <clears throat> what's interesting, uh, they had obviously lots of quotes about all kinds of subjects, amongst others about God, about belief, about religion, about Christianity. And what struck me is how consistently negative all of the quotes about God, religion, and Christianity and belief were. Like blatantly negative. It's, it's as though the, the world has just this, you know, bent against God. And the, even worse than that, it says, you know, abstain from the, the fleshly passions which war against your soul. Not only has this world got a bent against God, and is it in a sense hostile towards God, but it seems like we still have some of the world inside of us. Right? We, we all know the story of, of Troy. You know, uh, there's, there's this saying, you know, proverb in English, you know, they defended like Trojans. Because the Trojans who lived in Troy were, were famous for, for, you know, really defending their city. I mean, they, they thought that no one could break through their walls. And in the history of Troy, no one ever had. They were very proud of it. They were very proud of their military record of never being conquered. <clears throat> and then according to, to this legend, um, this one guy, I can't remember who it was, but he came up with this idea and he made the so-called wooden horse. The Trojan horse, like we call it. And he, they left it as a gift, supposedly, to the Trojans. And the Trojans were very, you know, happy with themselves that they again, you know, repelled the enemy army. And the army was so... So seemingly impressed with them that they left this wooden horse as a gift for them. So they took it into, into the city. And we all know what happened. During the night, the guys who were hiding in the wooden horse slipped out and opened the gates from the inside, signaled their, their friends who were on the ships. They came, they entered the city, and they conquered Troy. And it's as though the flesh is like that Trojan horse inside of us. That, that, that part of the world that's still left there, you know. And, 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 and we, we constantly, as Christians, feel this tension between living faithfully for our holy God and yet living fruitfully in a hostile world. And, it, and it's a real challenge. It's, it's, not a, it's not an easy challenge to face and, and one that we have to navigate. And I think in this passage... Um, the solution that Peter gives us is that we must learn to live as resident aliens. We must learn to live as resident aliens in this world. And, and, and that will allow us to keep the balance because 
Scripture never allows us to resolve that tension. It's a tension we have to live with. It's a tension we'll have to live with as long as we're on earth. There's no easy out. There's no easy answer to this. We're going to have to live with this tension and learn to live as resident aliens who actually make the best of that tension and allow that tension to bring out the best in us. Okay, so in that passage, um, I'm just my, my, my four headings are going to be uh, that we are a community of resident aliens, uh, defined by God's grace, declaring God's glory, and displaying God's goodness. Okay? Number one, we are a community of resident aliens. Two, defined by God's grace. Three, declaring God's glory. And four, displaying God's goodness. Okay, so let's just um, look at those first few verses. Um, before that, I just want you to see in the, in the actual text this, this tension and, and what I'm talking about. Um, don't want you to, to miss it, so let me... Read it in my little pocket Bible. In, <laughs> in, um, in, verse, in verse 11 and 12, you see this tension coming out especially. It, it says that, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. And, and we're going to talk about what those words mean, but, but it, it means... Part of what we can obviously see it means is it means in some sense we don't belong here. We're here, but we don't quite belong here. You know, there's that tension already. Um, to abstain from the from sinful desires which war against your flesh. So, so we're in the world and we experience the world and even the temptations of the world, but we abstain from it. We resist it. Live such good lives among the pagans. So we live among the pagans, we live among the nations, we live among uh, people who, who uh, in a culture that is not Christian, um, uh, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, so the world is hostile to us, even though we, we try and live such good lives, the world is hostile towards us, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So it's, it's the, the classic tension of being in the world, but not of the world. Right? You've all probably heard that saying, we're in the world, but not of the world. But we don't always deal with the tension that results from that. Because it, it, it's, it's a nice saying, yes, fine, yes, we are in the world, and yes, we're not of the world, we're different from the world. But how do we deal with that? That actually creates problems for us. That actually creates challenges for us. So how do we navigate that, that tension? <clears throat> okay, so sociologists tell us that organizations, and when we're looking corporately, we're looking at the world corporately as a culture, and we're looking at us as the church corporately as well. And sociologists tell us that, that groups or organizations or movements typically fall into three categories of dealing with um, the world that is different, the world around it. Okay, And you can just bring the first one up on the screen there. Um, the first one at the top there um, is a group that says we must fit in. Okay? We must fit in. In other words, we must assimilate to the culture. We must adopt the culture. We become part of the culture so that when we look at the culture, we don't really see a difference between them and us because we are them. We are the culture. 
We've assimilated to the culture. We've, you know, and typically you don't see a difference between these groups and the culture. They embrace the culture. They become part of the culture. Okay? And in Jesus' time, an example of that with the Sadducees. Okay? They, it's, it's very interesting how it happened. Um, they, now I don't know what came first, you know, their, their political position or their theology, you know, whether they developed their theology to support their political position or whether they first had the theology and then pursued the political position. But what happened was they were the priestly order and they came into power. They had a lot of power in the temple. They worked in the temple and so on. And they were very rich. They made a lot of money. I mean, it was primarily them that lost money when Jesus, you know, braided the whip and started chasing the money changers out of the temple. Because what they would do is they would, you know, it's hard to bring your goat all the way from the north of Galilee, you know, down to Jerusalem, you know, and go and sacrifice it in the temple. So it's much easier, you know, to just take your money and to go and buy something in Jerusalem. But then they would sell it at exorbitant prices, you know, to these peasants who didn't have that much money. And they made a lot of money. They were, they were really rich. In fact, archaeology has found that, I mean, the, the Sadducees lived mostly in Jerusalem because they were priests and they had to be around the temple. And they were f- some of the few people who could actually own, own property, afford property in Jerusalem because they were so rich and they made so much money off the temple and so on. And, and even, you know, uh, the, the archaeologists tell us even their bones that were dug up, you know, in, out of their graves, their bones are significantly bigger than the bones of the rest of the Israelites because they just ate so much better. They lived like kings in Jerusalem while many of the rest of the people suffered. And in their theology, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels and afterlife and in, in the spiritual realm. You see this in, in Acts 23 when, when Paul is in the, in the temple. You can go and read that account, you know, where he plays the Pharisees and the Sadducees off against each other. And, you know, I wonder what, if it's not possibly because they lived such comfortable lives... They already had heaven on earth that they didn't want, even feel the need to believe in a heaven or an afterlife. Well, we have our heaven now, you know. You know, have, uh, the thought of an afterlife or life after death would be scary to us because, um, you know, maybe we get judged. You know, <laughs> Let's rather believe that what we have now is it, you know. This is heaven. <clears throat> and that's the group that, that just fit in, that assimilate to the culture. The second group... Uh, at the bottom left um, is a group that says, no, we mustn't fit in, we must fight the culture. We're different from the culture, we reject the culture, the culture's values are different from ours, so we fight the culture. We attack the culture. Okay, we're against the culture. And, and those were the Pharisees. You know, they were, they, they were very strong on the law, you know, Torah, observing the law, keeping the law, and, and you know, we're against culture, we're opposing culture, we're challenging it all the time. And there are many Christians like that today as well. And just like there are many Christians who assimilate and just adopt the culture and they want to so be accepted by the culture, typically liberal Christians, you know, that they accommodate the culture and even assimilate to it. So you can see no difference between them and the surrounding culture. They're not a different community. They're not a a separate, a, a, a holy nation, a chosen people. There's no difference between them and the culture. But the Pharisees, you get a lot of so-called fundamentalist Christians who, who are you know, so angry at the, at the culture. You know? And, and you know, I, I read a quote um, that I liked the other day um, where the guy was saying, you know, 
some of what we as Christians do that we call cultural engagement is actually no more than cultural enragement. Because we, we, we say we're engaging the culture, but we're not. We're just attacking the culture the whole time. We're just attacking the culture the whole time. We're not really engaging it. And when you're constantly attacking the culture, you can't actually engage it. Okay? And those were the Pharisees. They, they, they saw themselves as, 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 as sort of superior, above, definitely different. So in, his, in a sense, they were a step better, at least, than the Sadducees. But they weren't engaging the culture. They were attacking the culture the whole time. Okay? And then there's another group that doesn't say fit in or fight, but they, they do flight. And those were the Essenes. You've probably heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls were written by a community of Essenes that lived at Qumran at the Dead Sea. And the reason why they had the Dead Sea Scrolls is because they were hiding in caves when the Romans invaded. And only later did the Romans discover them. But then by that time they'd hidden their, their, their library of scrolls in, in, the, in the caves. And, and they were completely separatist. So, some Essenes lived in, in the, the, the local community as well. But the ones at, at, at Qumran were separatists. They said, listen, just like the Pharisees, we're against the culture we, we dislike the different values of the culture. They don't like our values. So our solution is not to fight them, not to attack them, but to avoid them. We separate ourselves from them completely. We isolate ourselves. We go and live in the, in the, next to the Dead Sea in the desert, and, and we live holy lives. And there have been many Christians throughout history that have tried to do that. I mean, just think of all the monasteries throughout church history where Christians have said, okay, we want to be holy, which is noble, which is good. We want to be different from the world. Great. But the solution is, their solution is, we separate ourselves. The only way we can be holy, the only way we can live in a hostile world is to separate ourselves from the hostile world, to avoid the world. And in comes Jesus. If we just go to the next slide, and the Christians. And Jesus <clears throat> and the Christians have a radically, the early Christians have a radically different solution to this problem of being different from the world that actually freaks out all the other guys. Jesus freaked out the Sadducees. Because he didn't assimilate to the culture. He didn't fit in. Jesus freaked out the Pharisees even more because he hung out with sinners. I mean, he rubbed shoulders with prostitutes and t- tax collectors and all kinds of unsavory characters. That the, I mean, one of the biggest accusations that the Pharisees brought against Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus never denied that. He liked hanging out with sinners. He also liked hanging out with the Pharisees, by the way. He, he made no distinction. He hung out with everyone. Okay? And, and you know, the Essenes, I mean, <laughs> obviously they were avoiding everyone, so they didn't even engage with Jesus, you know. <laughs> they were hiding in their, in their caves in Qumran. But what I want you to see is all three, the other groups, all of them do what they do to avoid suffering. Because if you can assimilate to the culture and become like the culture, they regard you and you avoid suffering. They think well of you because you're like them and you affirm their values. If you attack the culture, you can sort of keep them at, a, at arm's length, at a, at a distance, and, and sort of, you know, you can be superior and aloof and, and what they, their attacks, you know, their counterattacks, you know, you just say, ah, oh, you know, we expect that of them, bunch of evil, you know, people, you know, and it doesn't hurt you. If you avoid them, you also avoid suffering. So all three groups do what they do. They assimilate, they attack, or they avoid in order to not suffer. 
Because in order to engage the culture and still be different from the culture, to, to be different from the culture and yet not defensive, you have to be willing to suffer because you're going to suffer. Wherever you have genuine contact with a culture that is different from you and hostile to you, you will have suffering. But that's the only way we, could, we can engage the culture. And that's what Jesus did. He said, I'm willing to suffer. I'm going to hang out. I'm going to be in close contact, life-on-life contact with the culture and really, truly engage it even though I'm very different from it. And I, I expect to suffer for that. And I'm, I'm all right with that. And First Peter, go and read the old letter of First Peter. It's all about Peter encouraging the Christians and saying, listen, we live in this hostile world, but we can't avoid it. We can't attack it. We can't assimilate to it. Those are not options to us. We have to engage it and be willing to experience the suffering that inevitably follows engaging with the hostile world. But that's the only way we can reach the world. Because the other thing you'll see is that, that all three of the other options, the assimilating, the attacking, and the avoiding, none of them change the world. If you assimilate to the world, you cannot change it. You cannot change the world by becoming like it. Because when you become like it, what are you gonna, there's no difference. There's nothing that you can say, okay, change and become like us. Because they're going to say, but we're already like you. <laughs> In fact, you're like us. <laughs> Okay, you can't change the world by becoming like it. You can't change the world by assimilating. You can't change the world by attacking it. Because all that you do is you, you make it defensive and you ostracize it. You alienate it. You can't change the world by avoiding it. Because then it never sees you. So none of those three options will change the world. Why did the early Christians change the world? Like they did. Why did the, 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 the early Greco-Roman world go from you know, not knowing of Christianity at the resurrection of Jesus to, to being, you know, majority Christian, you know, in the 300s AD, you know, in a few hundred years. How, how did that happen to the Greco-Roman world? Well, the early Christians genuinely engaged the world and they were willing to suffer from a hostile world in order to Reach that world, just like Jesus did. Just like Jesus did. Okay, does that make sense? So that's the, that's the tension, that's the challenge that, that, that lies before us. <clears throat> we are a community of, of uh, resident aliens. We're in the world, but not of it. Um, like I said, uh, 1 Peter 2 verse 11 uh, uses two words. It, it uses sojourners. Paroikos in the, in, the, in the Greek, which is resident aliens, those who live in a place that is not their home. And then it also has another word that, it, that the ESV translates, exiles, uh, which uh, means those who, who are staying for a while in a strange or foreign place, sojourners residing temporarily. So but both of these words have this tension of, I'm living in a place that is not my home. But I'm not, I'm not just living there for a little while. I'm not just a tourist. I'm, I'm, I'm not a settler. I'm not a settler that's settling in and, and becoming part of the culture. But I'm also not just a tourist that's visiting the culture for a few weeks. I'm living there. Okay? I'm a resident alien. And, and obviously when, when, we say, when I say resident alien, I don't mean like you know, Superman you know, who lives on earth you know, as Clark Kent you know, for a couple of decades. But actually he's, he's from Krypton. You know? I, I don't mean aliens as in you know, men, in, men in black aliens. You know? <laughs> 
I mean aliens as in foreigners, you know, people who, who are living in a, in a country that is not their home. And, and, and that is the picture of what we should be. So we're, we're a community of resident aliens. Notice in, 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 um, in chapter 2 verse 9, uh, right at the start of that, that passage, um, Peter says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Notice the, the communal aspect of each of those words. Chosen, race. A royal, priesthood. A holy, nation. God's own special people, as in a people group that belong to God. All four of those descriptions have a communal aspect to them. And, and, and here's the first secret I want to share with you, and that I think Peter is sharing with us. You cannot live as a resident alien alone. Living with this tension is not something you can do alone. You need a community. You need to be part of a community that supports you, that encourages you, that prays for you, that is like you. Re, you know, engaging the culture without becoming like the culture is not something you can do as a lone ranger. It's not something that you can do alone. We can only do it as a church. Only communities can change cultures. Individuals cannot change cultures. Only communities can change cultures. And that's why God's solution to the world is us, the church, a community, a countercultural community of grace that he created. And the picture there, I, I read it to you, to you last time. Oh, I actually forgot my Bible, <laughs> my big Bible in the car, but I, I read it to you last time. So um, in uh, Exodus 19, verse 5 to 6, God says to, to Israel, you know, I've called you to be a kingdom of priests to be a holy nation, to be my own treasured possession. I've called you. So, so the picture that God gives us is the picture of Israel coming out of slavery in Egypt and moving towards the promised land, but, but not yet having arrived at the promised land. We have no home that is our own. We're not, we're not in the promised land yet, but we're not in the world system anymore. We're on our way, but we sort of Nomads, resident aliens who don't have a fixed home. We're traveling, we're on our way to our final destination, to the city that we're looking towards. And, and, and that is the picture that God holds up. And, and the, obviously there's the communal aspect um, of that. Then in, in uh, 1 Peter 1 verse 1, uh, Peter talks to, to the, um, he, he addresses his letter you know, um, let me just read it to you. To God's elect, strangers in the world. There's that same word, you know, resident aliens in the world. Scattered throughout Pontus, etc. So th that word scattered is, is the word from which we get diaspora. Dispersion. So, so, so we are God's dispersed people. We, we, we are God's people of the dispersion. We're scattered throughout the world. We, we're exiles, as it were, in the world. And it's, it's the picture of the Babylonian exile, the diaspora. You know, when, 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 when Assyria first took the, the ten northern tribes and later on Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar and them took the, the two southern tribes as well into Babylon, into Assyria and those places, and they got scattered throughout the nations. That's the picture. And you know what God said 
to his people in Jeremiah 29 verse 7? His people who were under exile? How are they supposed to live? Oh, you know, just resist the world. Keep yourself separate from it. Avoid it. Attack it. Assimilate to it. No, 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 no. None of those three options. Listen to what he says in Jeremiah. This is just representative. He says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you find your welfare. So, so be a separate people, but engage the world. Seek the welfare of your city. Pray for it because if it goes well with your city, it will go well with you. Because recognize that you are exiles in that city. The Lord sent you to that city. Guess what? Some of you might feel like exiles, but the Lord sent you to Johannesburg. <laughs> Some of you might have felt at stages in your, uh, while you were here in Joburg that, that God was punishing you like he punished the Israelites, you know, by sending you. <laughs> what did I do, Lord, that you sent me to Joburg? <laughs> no, you didn't do anything wrong. God sent you, yeah. But he sent you for the same reason that he sent the Israelites, or one of the same reasons that he sent the Israelites to Babylon or you know, Nineveh or any of those cities. Go and be a blessing. Go and change that city. Pray for its welfare. Work for its welfare. Okay, so, so we must have that same diaspora paradigm in our minds. But then I also want you to notice we're not only a community of resident aliens, but we're specifically a community of resident aliens defined by God's grace. I mean, all those, those first two verses are just just dripping, just saturated with God's grace. I just want to show it to you. I'm just going to um, read you in a moment a, a verse from, from Deuteronomy 7, three or so verses from Deuteronomy 7. But notice, he starts off by saying, but you are, and you need, you need to get this, this is important, you are a chosen nation. He doesn't say you're a choice nation. He says we're a chosen nation. You see the difference between being choice and being chosen? Being choice means we're great. We're special. We're chosen because we're special. And what he's saying is the opposite. He's saying you're special because you're chosen. Right? You're special because you're chosen. You're not choice, you're chosen. And that implies God's grace. We're chosen by God's grace. Listen to what God says to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 7. And, and listen if you can hear the echo of, of this passage. Um, just like uh, Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6. If you can hear the echo of this passage in, 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 in the words of Peter in, in 1 Peter 2. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Can you see all those words used in Second uh, in First Peter? appearing here as well, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. In fact, you know, I, I don't think the, the, the English translation quite does justice to it. It, 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 it literally it, it means that it's not because you were so impressive not because you were the most impressive nation that the Lord loved you and chose you. In fact, you were, you were pretty unimpressive. <laughs> but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out, of, out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Can you see that? We are chosen, not choice. 
And we are not chosen because we are so great or impressive. We're, we're, we're chosen because of God's grace and his love. Amen? You see God's grace in that? And then it, notice it says, you, not only you are a chosen people, uh, a chosen people, chosen race, but it says you are a royal priesthood. And like I said last time as well, it doesn't say you have a royal priesthood. The Israelites had a priesthood. All other religions had a priesthood. Christianity doesn't have a priesthood. Christianity is a priesthood. Can you see the difference? If you're a Christian sitting here this morning, then you are a priest. I'm not the priest. God forbid. In a sense that I'm a priest, you know, as opposed to you not being a priest, you know, because I, you know, preach the word or something. No, I am a priest, but so are you. You're as much a priest as I am. We are a royal priesthood. And, and this freaked out, and, and this is once again just the grace of God. You know, uh, this freaked out the early Greco-Romans. I mean, they used to refer to the Christians as atheists. You know why? I mean, for instance, with the Jews, the Jews also only had one God, and they rejected all other gods. But they didn't call the Jews atheists. The Christians, like the Jews, were monotheists. They had only one God, Yahweh, in, in whom obviously was included, you know, Jesus was included in the divine identity. But um, what made the Romans call the Christians atheists was the Christians had no temple. They had no priesthood. They had no sacrifices. And the, the Romans looked at this and said, we have never seen a religion like this. These guys are atheists. These Galileans are atheists, you know. Any self-respecting religion needs a, a temple that they can point to. The Jews at least could point to a temple. They need a priesthood. The Jews at least had priests. And they need sacrifices. Because people knew that between the divine and, and uh, divinity and humanity, there was this gap. Between gods and men, there was this gap. And you needed a spiritual elite to mediate between that gap. And here's the grace. In Christianity... We are the temple. Well, firstly, Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the priest. Jesus is the sacrifice. And therefore, we are the temple. We are the priests. We are the sacrifice. You don't need some other spiritual elite to mediate between you and God. You have that privilege for yourself by the grace of God. And you see the grace in that? We're defined by God's grace. We're also a holy nation, which is very interesting. I mean, if you just... If you just read, um, you know, 1 Peter, 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says we're a holy nation. 1 Peter 2 verse 11 says, abstain from the world and from the carnal, from the fleshly passions which war against your soul. So, I mean, we still experience the temptations of the world. You know, if, if you look at us and you look closely enough at our, at our deeds and even more at our, at our, at our thoughts and, and, and our, at our desires, you'll see... <laughs> We don't look that holy. <laughs> we don't. And yet, even though we struggle with temptations and even fall for temptations, quite often, for some other reason, God calls us a holy nation. And you know what the reason is for that? See, God was holy long before sin existed. So we shouldn't define Holiness as separation from sin. We should define holiness as separation unto God. 
If God was holy long before sin existed, then you cannot define holiness in terms of sin. Because God was holy before there was sin. You have to define holiness in terms of God. God can call us a holy nation because he has separated us unto himself. He has made us by his grace, even though he's not perfect yet, like he is. By his grace he has made us his. Jerusalem is called the holy city. Israel is called the holy land. The Bible is called the holy Bible. Why? Because what do all three of those things have in common? They belong to God in a special way. And that's what holy means. It means God has by his grace made us belong to him in a special way. Can you see that? Can you see the grace of God in that? But not only that, I mean, it, it goes on and it says that we are God's own possession, which is a, you know, quite a watered-down translation. I mean, I read it to you now in, in Deuteronomy 7, verse, verse 6 to 8, where it says that um, you are God's treasured possession. It says the same thing in Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6. We are God's treasured possession. That's what the word there means. It means we are God's treasure. Just think about that. We are God's treasure. Really think about it. When a poor man says, I have a treasured possession, it doesn't say that much. Because maybe, you know, he got some other, you know, heirloom. You know, maybe he inherited his mother's wedding ring, which had a, you know, nice big diamond in it. And it's, it's worth, you know, a few tens of thousands of rands or whatever. But, but he has nothing else. So compared. Compared to the nothing that he has, that's like a treasure, you know. So when, when someone poor says, this is my treasured possession, it doesn't really mean that much. But when someone who is stinking rich and has everything says, this is my treasured possession, compared to the lots that that person is, that treasure, calling it his treasured possession, says a lot. God owns everything. All the nations are his. All the world is his. The seas and all its riches belong to him. The mountains and all the gold and diamonds and whatever is in him, it all belongs to him. The moon, sun, stars in the sky all belong to him. The beauty of this world, he created it, it belongs to him. Everything belongs to him. And in the context of everything belonging to him, he says, you are my treasured possession. You are my prized possession. Can you see what he's saying? Can you see how special God makes us? Not because we are so wonderful in ourselves, but because he has chosen us. He has chosen us. We, he doesn't love us because we are special. We are special because he loves us. The value, the the main value that we have is the value that God places on us. I mean, when when you when you go and buy a house, I mean, the 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 property market is is not a there's not a fixed price. There's not a a list you can go to and say, you know, objectively speaking, this house is worth this, this much. You know, a house is worth whatever someone is willing to pay for it, right? And we are worth what God was willing to pay for us. And guess how much he paid for us? His own life. Can you see what it means that we are his treasured possession? Can you see how loved you are? 
Unless you understand how loved you are, you will never be able to live as a resident alien in this hostile world. Unless you understand how treasured and precious you are to God, you will never be able to live with that tension in this hostile world. Can you see that? You know, but not only that, not only are we his treasured possession, we are his treasured possession despite the fact that we, we are, like I said last time, we are like Gomer. Remember the story of, of Gomer and um, Hosea the prophet? Like I said to you last time, and I, I just had a, um, I didn't have much time to, to go into it, but I just had a few moments to touch on it at the end of last, um, last time I preached about it. Let me just find Hosea in this Bible. Here we go. Um, God comes to Hosea, the prophet, um, and he says something very interesting to him. You know, it's, sometimes God says stuff that you just sort of want to say, no, God, you know. <laughs> God, you can't say that. That's, that's against your law, you know. Like Abraham, go and sacrifice your son. No, 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 God, you don't allow human sacrifice. <laughs> you can't tell him to come and sacrifice my son because you don't allow human sacrifice. Well, listen to what he says to Hosea. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go and take for yourself a wife of whoredom, a promiscuous wife, in other words, and have children of whoredom, <laughs> which includes children that are not his own. I mean, even one of his children, he even meant, he calls them, you know, not mine. Because <laughs> she was sleeping around with other men, you know, like having children all over the place, you know. Then he says, For the for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of uh, Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son, etc. So he, he, he has to go. And I mean, um, Lauren was she's saying she likes prophetic action. Well, he had to do like a, a seriously unpleasant prophetic action. He had to go and take a pr- promiscuous wife to present, to, to, to prophetically represent to Israel how Israel is towards God. A promiscuous wife that sleeps around, spiritually speaking. Um, the, the, the verse actually alluded to or quoted in, 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 in 1 Peter 2 verse 10 is Hosea 2 verse 23, where it says... And I will sow her, sorry, and, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. That's the verse being quoted in, in 1 Peter 2 verse 10. And then listen to, to um, Hosea 3 verse, verse 1 to, to 3. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of ra- uh, sacred raisin cakes, so I bought her, Gomer, his own wife. I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer um, of barley, etc. I bought back. My, she, Gomer ended up in slavery. I don't know whether she sold herself into slavery or whether one of her lovers to whom she ran eventually abused her and sold her into slavery. But the, end, the, the fact was she ended up in slavery. And God says to Isaiah, go and buy her back. Go and buy her back. You see, we are God's treasured possession, which he bought, even though we like Gomer. All a bunch of adulterous prostitutes in our hearts. 
All of mankind's like that. And yet God loved us so much that he went and in his patience just brought us back. And not only brought us back, but made us his treasured possession. That is love. That is grace. Amen. Um, let me go a bit quicker. We, we defined by God's grace declare, to declare God's glory that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And when you understand God's grace, that you are his treasured possession, that you are so loved by him, it's impossible not to praise him, right? It's impossible not to praise him for bringing us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once we, by his marvelous light, see him in all his glory, in all his love, in all his compassion, in all his splendor. You know, the, the reality is we, we, C.S. Lewis says, we naturally praise what we enjoy most. Praise is not a, like a, a, only a spiritual thing. You know, um, have you ever seen a bunch of Afrikaner men watching rugby? Watching the Springboks, and then they score a try and win the series against, the, the, against Wales. Have, have you ever seen that? I think that's one of the most pure forms of worship there is. <laughs> they jump up, they scream, you know. <laughs> they they clapping hands, they're hugging one another, you know. Because they really enjoy it, they're happy, you know. They call their friends, you know, did you see it, did you see that try? We praise what we enjoy. Have you ever listened to a song that really touched your heart and drove you to tears? What's your first natural reaction? You, you want to phone someone, you want to share it with someone, you say, come and listen to this. Just listen to the song. It's so awesome. What are you doing? You're praising the song because you're enjoying it. The way to declare the excellencies of God is to experience the excellencies of God. Enjoy the excellencies of God. Savor the excellencies of God. Savor God for who He is. And then the most natural thing in the world would be to praise it, to declare His glory to the world. You know, you can only declare His excellencies if His light is marvelous to you. If you look at it and say, Wow, God opened my blind eyes and now I can see Him. This light by which I can see God and what He does in the world is marvelous. It's wondrous light. It's that sense of wonder at what God has done in your life that turns you into a worshiper of God. Listen to this, um, Isaiah 43. Because Isaiah takes, um, takes that, that thing from Deuteronomy and Exodus about being God's holy nation, his special people, his treasured possession. And, and it applies it, not only to Israel that God's going to restore, but, but to, to the true Israel of the new covenant. We can call it that. In uh, Isaiah 43, verse 20 to 21, it says, The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. I will give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. The water in the wilderness, the rivers in the desert? We know from other scriptures, like Isaiah 44, uh, uh, Isaiah 32, verse 15, Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 39, that all of those pictures refer to the Holy Spirit, the living waters of the Holy Spirit. That is poured out. So when he says, I'm going to give, at the end of verse 20, for I'll give water in the wilderness and rivers in the desert uh, to give drink to my chosen people. Yeah? That's the same words, my chosen people. He's talking about the Holy Spirit as the new covenant being poured out. 
and his people. And then he says in verse 21, The people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. You see that? We were created for this. We were made for this. That's why Jesus talks about worshiping in spirit and in truth. When you receive the living waters of the, of the Holy Spirit, you become a worshiper. You were created to worship, to praise in the spirit of God. The God's grace produces God's greatest glory. And as we're going to see in the, under the next point, our greatest good. So not only are we supposed to dis- de- declare God's glory, but we're supposed to display his goodness in the world, in this fallen world. Um, if we are defined by God's grace, we'll put his goodness on display to the world. What I want you to see, though, is that despite we already having received God's grace, there is still a battle in us. Just because we've received God's grace doesn't mean the battle's over. We still have to resist the world. We still have to resist the world. We still have to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against our souls. In other words, the battle is still going on. It's a, here's the good news though. Even though there is still a battle, and the battle, who knows that the battle's going on in your mind? The war is in your soul. Okay, the battlefield of the mind, that's why your mind needs to be renewed according to Romans 12. Okay? But here's the good news. Because of God's grace, it's not a losing battle. It's a winning battle. We're not fighting a losing battle. If you truly have received God's grace and God's spirit lives inside of you, you're not fighting a losing battle. You're fighting a winning battle against the passions of this world that war against your soul. So internally we abstain, but externally we engage. We engage the world like Jesus did. We, we spend time with sinners like the Pharisees would call them. We spend time with tax collectors, with, with prostitutes. We spend time with people who are irreligious, who don't know God and who don't even necessarily want to know God because that's what Jesus did. So in, externally we engage, we, we, we become one with the world, but internally we abstain so that they can see we are not like them. We don't reject them, we love them like Jesus loved them, but we're not like them, we're different. So we not only share the word, we're not only declaring the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light, we're displaying it through our lives, through the way that we live as well. One of the quotes I love most is, unless we have within us that which is above us, we will soon yield to that which is around us. Unless we have within us that which is above us, we will soon yield to that which is around us. It's only by God's grace inside of us, by spirit inside, His Holy Spirit inside of us, that we can abstain from, from the passions of the flesh and, and, and not become like the world. I just want to read you a, a few um, words from a, it's from the letter of Di, uh, to Diognetus, old you know, Christian letter written in the first few centuries. Um, where he talks about Christians, and he says, For Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom. For nowhere do they live in cities of their own, nor do they speak some unusual dialect, or do they practice eccentric lifestyles. In other words, they, in, in many ways, their lifestyle is similar to the culture in which they live. This teaching of theirs 
has not been discovered through uh, the thought and reflection of ingenious men, nor do they promote any human doctrine as some do. But while they live in both Greek and barbarian cities, as each one's lot has, uh, was cast, and follow the local customs in dress and food and other aspects of life, as the same, at the same time they demonstrate a remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. They live in their own countries, but only as aliens. They participate in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland and every, and the, every fatherland is foreign to them. They marry like, other, uh, like everyone else and have children, but they do not expose their offspring. In those days, it was very common if you didn't want a child, especially uh, you know, if you had a girl when you wanted a boy, you would just put it out, expose it to the elements, just put it out and, and leave it to die. It was an early form of abortion or infanticide. And, and they said they, they have children, but they don't do these things. They don't, do, they don't expose their, their offspring, their children. They share their food, but not their wives. Because in that culture, it was actually, I mean, you know, nowadays they talk about swinging, you know, guys, you know, sharing their wives and their husbands with one another. That's not a new thing. That was quite common in the Roman Empire. You went and you, you, just, you got a dinner invitation. Chances were your host expected some action, you know, after dinner. But, uh, you know, this guy says they, they, they share their food, but not their wives. They are in the flesh. But they do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but, citizens, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established law. Indeed, in their private lives, they transcend the laws. They don't only obey the laws, they go beyond what the laws of the land require. Indeed, in their private lives, they transcend the, Lord, the, the laws. They love everyone, but by everyone they are persecuted. They are unknown, yet they are uh, condemned. They are put to death yet they are brought to life. They are poor, and yet they make many rich. They are in need of everything, and yet they are bound in everything. They are dishonored, yet they, they are glorified in their dishonor. They are slandered, and yet they are vindicated. They are cursed, and yet they bless. They are insulted, and yet they offer respect. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. Can you see the allusion to, to our text in, in, in 1 Peter 2. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. And when they are punished, they rejoice as though brought to life. By the Jews, they are assaulted as foreigners, and by the, the Greeks, they are persecuted. Yet, those who hate them are unable to give a reason for their hostility. That was the early church. And that was the reason why they changed the world. They could put God's goodness on display even to a hostile world, even under persecution. Um, in, uh, you know, in fact, they, they, were, they were so good at doing that that they, that they put the, the, the ancient Greco-Roman world to shame. Um, you know, after, what was his name? Augustine, Caesar. Uh, one of his descendants, who was a pagan, became Caesar. And uh, Julian was his name. He's called Julian the Apostate. Apostate. That was in around 360 um, AD, 360 after Christ. And he, he writes in a letter to, uh, to, to another priest. He says, Observe how the kindness of the Christians to strangers, their care for the burial of their dead, and the sobriety of their lifestyle has done the most to advance their cause. 
the impious Galileans, which was his nickname for the Christians, support their, their own poor as well as ours. You know, can you see how they transcend in their goodness, in their kindness, the standards of the day? They outdid the ancient world in all ways. They outthought the ancient world and they outdid the ancient world. They outlived the ancient world. And, 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 and the, you know, the pagan cultures were put to shame. So he says, Peter says, um, let me just read that again. Dear friends, I, uh, I urge you as strangers and aliens in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your son. And then he says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, clearly there's an allusion to what Jesus says in Matthew 5 or 16. He says, let your good deeds shine before men in such a way that they might glorify your Father in heaven. Now, just think about this. You can do good deeds in a way that doesn't glorify God, that people glorify you instead of God. When you looked at, say, Abraham making a sacrifice and an ancient Canaanite making a sacrifice, you see many of the same things. If you're watching it from a distance, you'll see a pile of stones, altar build of stones. You'll see an animal that's being slaughtered. You'll see a fire consuming the sacrifice. It looks pretty much the same. Until you go closer and you hear what they say. And we have got to make sure that we declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into wonderful light. It's not enough for us to just do good. It's the combination of doing good and speaking life. Glorifying God. It's the combination that will eventually make people turn, see our good deeds and turn and glorify God uh, on the day of visitation. Now, there's a lot more that I wanted to share, but, but I'm, I'm taking too long, so let me, let me end off. With this, what does this day of visitation mean? Many people think that it means. In fact, the, the ushers, you can get the communion ready if you, if you want to. Um, many, many think it means day of visitation means the second coming of Christ. Um, and because I mean, in Philippians it says, you know, on that day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So they're saying, but that's glorifying God on the day of visitation. But I, I doubt whether it, it refers to that. Because listen, listen carefully to what that verse says. It says that make sure that, that you live such good lives that they can see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The NIV says the day visits us, but the us is not there. It just says literally the day of visitation. So, so the, the, the glorifying God is linked to the good deeds. On the day of judgment, on Christ, at Christ's second coming, when every knee will bow and every tongue con will confess, even those who have not seen our good deeds will glorify God. Right? So it's not talking about that. What's it talking about? It's talking about them, people who slander us as evildoers, see us consistently, persistently living. And when, it's, when it says, let your, you know, live such good lives, it's, it's living a lifestyle, a good lifestyle. That glorifies God. Living such good lives before them. They see our good deeds. They slander us as evildoers. But eventually, because we persistently and consistently live good lives and do good towards them in the name of God, eventually God visits them. And they get saved. Can you see now what happens? And then they also become part of the holy nation. They also become 
part of the chosen people. They also become part of the royal priesthood and they glorify God by declaring the excellencies of him who called them out of darkness into, their wonder, into his wonderful life. light. When? When he visited them through his spirit. In verse 4 and 5 it says, as we come to him, he makes us a spiritual house. Why a spiritual house? A house that is filled with his spirit. So the day of visitation is the day the Holy Spirit visits them. Through us living the gospel and us preaching the gospel, eventually it breaks down their resistance. Because we don't assimilate to the world, we don't attack the world, we don't avoid the world, we keep doing good and speaking good of the gospel and, and being willing, like our, our Savior Jesus, to suffer for doing good. And eventually God uses that to break through their defenses and he visits them through his spirit. And they become part of his holy nation, his treasured possession. Isn't that special? I just want to read you that, that very last verse that I had up there again. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Just keep the, the elements of communion and let's, let's just stand. Because these elements of the communion represent not only our salvation, our cleansing from sin. It represents Christ's willingness to suffer for us. And it reminds us of our responsibility to follow his example. The only reason why we can be willing to suffer in a hostile world in order to faithfully represent the holy God is because we have, we have had one who has gone before us and done it for us. We have Christ in whose footsteps we can follow. So I just want you to, right there we are, just close your eyes. And I want you to receive this communion as a token and symbol of Christ's willingness, even his eagerness to suffer and die for you and leave you an example. I just want you to, as you close your eyes and focus on Jesus, just firstly thank him for what he's done for you and secondly say, Lord, help me to follow your example. It's not easy. Help me to follow your example.